Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Today's guest name is John Thwing, also known as the SBA guy. He's done over 400 transactions and spent the better part of his career and tenure at Wells Fargo before landing at Anchor Bank. The best part about John and his philosophy and his style is that he believes that the fundamentals come first before the deal structure because you have to know where you're trying to go before you actually know what tools to use. So John provides us with a ton of insight about the SBA structure, the loans, how they work, when and where the lender plays with the relationship to the buyer, the seller, and the broker and the other advisors. And he provides us with some great insight on all the deals that he's done because as a bank, you're neutral to the process. So the whole goal is to have a successful transition. So he gives the analogy of being like a magnet where he has to bring the buyer and the seller together to make sure that this all works because the main goal in a successful transition is for the bank to get repaid. So John's experience sheds some light on a lot of different scenarios on what equals a qualified buyer, what kind of buyers go into the SBA world to then purchase a business, and then how a seller can use the SBA as a tool to finance their exit. I really hope you enjoy this interview with John. He provides a lot of good information with all of his tenure. So without further ado, here's the interview with John. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. John, how are you doing today? Good, Ryan. How are you? Doing good. Uh, looking forward to having you on the show. You have a lot of experience that you're willing to share with us today. So before we even kick it off, for our listeners' sake, can you go back, because you are heavy into the SBA world, but kind of go back and how did you get into the whole lending practice and kind of walk us a, a brief overview of how you got to where you are today? You bet. Um, well, I started at Northwestern National Bank as a mail boy, took a year off of college. That was my first entree into banking. Um, then I was in the home mortgage division. I was in the, the Norwest Phone Bank. Um, I was in cash management sales, selling to large corporate entities, and then uh, always wanted to get into small business. So got into small business lending in our SBA division about 15 years ago at Wells Fargo and uh, been there ever since. So you have a crazy amount of transactions you've done. It's what, upwards in it's 400 now? Yeah, a little over 400 transactions closed and funded. So we got a lot of stories we can uh, dive into, I think, today. So for you to, you know, you are labeled as the SBA guy. And I think as we kind of take this interview from, you know, the kind of the high level of the functionality of the SBA down into, you know, maybe some of the, the stories and deal structures that you've seen, but to kind of start high level, can you just give us a brief rundown of the, the major high levels of a SBA loan? You bet. So people tend to think that an SBA loan is a loan from the SBA. I always like folks to know there's really no such thing as an SBA loan. Banks make loans that are partially guaranteed by the SBA through the 7A program. And then banks make first mortgages and certified development companies make second mortgages that are guaranteed by the SBA for commercial real estate. So number one, important to note, the capital going into the deal that I represent is, is bank capital. So the SBA guarantee only comes in on the back end. Um, there's three main 
areas that SBA is used for. The 7A program, which is general financing of all different varieties. The 504 program, which is typically commercial real estate or long-term equipment assets. And then revolving lines of credit, either the SBA Express program or the CAP line program. Okay. So, and then was there one a a handful of years ago that was like 90% guaranteed or something like that? Cause I remember when we had our company, we got one that was unique. And I think we like, we landed this SBA loan that was almost like, was it 90, 95% guaranteed by the government, which is no longer around? Well, during the recession there, uh, the guarantee levels for lenders actually went up, but you might be thinking of loan to values. So for instance, when you finance commercial real estate or the acquisition of a business, Perhaps the the financing was at 90% loan to value, which is pretty common for SBA, particularly on commercial real estate. Got it. So, you know, when you're working, because the the SBA has rules and regulations around deal structures, correct? Because when you and I were talking on a past phone call, it's about, it's so much different than the normal market where you can pretty much anything goes when you're doing a deal structure. So, you know, in your experience, in your tenure, where are the common areas that you're seeing and where do you usually play within the, the using the SBA loan as a tool? Yep. And, and SBA does have specific structures. Um, typically, there's more flexibility than people realize. And it's because many practitioners don't really know how to leverage the program that well. But for instance, in an SBA, what's called change of ownership, so a business acquisition, when there's more than 500000 of goodwill, SBA requires that the lender not lend more than 75% of the purchase price. So definitely depending on the transaction type uh, with commercial real estate as well, particularly in the 504 program, SBA kind of dictates what loan to value you can lend to. So there are areas where SBA dictates the structure. There are other areas where SBA doesn't dictate a structure and, and lenders have more flexibility. What are those different areas? Well, for instance, in the 7A program for commercial real estate, SBA does not specify a required equity injection. Now, most banks and most markets will require at least 10% equity Mm. on an SBA 7A real estate deal, but SBA itself does not have a specific policy related to required equity. So a bank can, as long as it thinks it's still making a prudent loan, could, for instance, do up to 100% financing on commercial real estate. Now, they may not do that, and it may be outside their lending policy, but SBA does not prevent them from doing that. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. Um, similarly, with, with business acquisitions with less than 500000 of goodwill, um, SBA does not dictate the equity requirement. That's really up to the lender's discretion. And let's go into that, you know, um, when you're talking about where they've got some stipulations, because those are some of the deals that you and I were talking about. And I think, you know, a lot of our listeners play around that area where, you know, when we sold the business, it's like, like I said, anything goes on deal structure and we can kind of get that to them in a second. But, you know, if you're using the SBA as a as one of the main types of financing, there's a lot of restrictions on earnouts, employment contracts and all those sorts of other caveats that people like to throw into the deal. Correct. Correct. I say SBA is good at vanilla, chocolate and strawberry. <laughs> SBA is not good at Baskin Robbins 31 flavors. Um, so I, I think of it as both a strength and a weakness of the SBA program. One of the problems a lot of folks have when they're looking at exit strategy is there are almost too many choices. There's too, a lot of different ways to do things. In an SBA-funded scenario, it gets very specific. So for instance, you can't have an earnout. You can't really have any contingent payouts based on company performance over time. Um, the seller has to no longer be an officer owner or employee of the business post-closing. 
the seller can have up to a 12-month consulting agreement. Um, so some of those things drive a lot of clarity and fewer choices. Um, why is sometimes that, that? Yeah, well, I would say I've, I've been doing SBA loans so long that they kind of make sense to me. <laughs> um, from my point of view, philosophically, the reason SBA has those requirements is SBA wants to make sure they're creating or they're funding actual transitions of ownership to a new generation of owner, which will extend the life cycle of the business. When you think about the whole purpose and mission of SBA, it's to retain jobs, to create and retain jobs, and to create and retain tax basis um, or, or tax revenue. If they just recapitalize the current owner, for instance, it doesn't necessarily extend the, the life cycle of the business. So SBA has got structures in place that prevent transactions that aren't true changes of ownership and management. Interesting. That I mean, that like you said, philosophically, that makes a ton of sense. You know, with the the experience and the people that I talk to and the people that I work with, there's a lot of, you know, when you get into that flexibility, like you said, you can almost be paralyzed with all the different choices, and then like the ripple effect of tax strategies and all the stuff that happened from the unlimited amount of options. Yep. You know, do you do you ever run into challenges with deals where people can't get something done because you know an earnouts or an employment contract or a consulting contract? Those are a lot of ways to push the risk back onto the seller and or potentially net more proceeds over the course of the deal. So do you, do you run into issues with not being able to have that flexibility? Yeah, the there there you definitely run into issues. So for instance, the um, SBA is best at funding businesses that have some consistency over time and that are not in hockey stick growth. If you got a transaction that's in that kind of hockey stick growth, it's hard for an SBA lender to catch up to or keep up with value. Oh, it's very hard for a banker as well. That's why equity players of various types are more often or or strategics are more often going to be uh, the funding mechanisms for those kind of high growth or more volatile businesses. Um, the uh, for me personally, I'm not an attorney. Um, you know, I, I in my transactions, it, it really does come down to fit. And the SBA tool is sometimes a good fit for funding a deal, and it's sometimes not. So what I do is I help both sellers and agents recognize, hey, when might SBA not be a good fit? Doesn't mean it's not a good deal or a good entrepreneurial opportunity might mean it's not a good SBA opportunity. So I, I love your philosophy because you and I were talking about fit versus fundamentals. Can you just dive into that and kind of give us your overall philosophy on how transactions work? You bet. Um, so uh, a lot of my transactions are driven by change, what, what SBA refers to as a change of ownership. So business acquisitions, when someone's buying a going concern, um, my buyer is typically either an individual or another closely held concern, another small business. Um, and for me, the key issue is always fundamentals first, deal structure second. Um, I think of the deal structure and financing as kind of a, what I call a flavor of capital. Um, the key is both banks and SBA lenders are cash flow lenders first. So for a bank conventionally, it, let, it first finances on cash flow and then on collateral. SBA lender first finances on cash flow, then the SBA guarantee, then very thirdly, collateral. Um, so making sure that we've got fundamentals, which would include cash flow that supports the price, cash flow that supports reasonable owner pay, and cash flow that supports some wiggle room or breathing room for the for our borrower. Um, so, so those are the three fundamental things the business has to do. Pay the owner, pay the lenders, provide some cash flow wiggle room. Um, once you have that, 
then it really depends on what's the strength of the buyer, how much collateral is in the deal, and how strongly does it cash flow. And there are some deals that could be eligible for either conventional financing or SBA, but probably most of, most of the deals in the market, and given uh, the multiples in the market, um, SBA becomes a really good tool because you can go up to 10 years where most banks are only going to finance goodwill or acquired business assets over five years. So there's a lot of different ways I want to go with, because I, I think it's a fantastic, like you said, it, it it's such a clean philosophy on how you're working with the, the structures and making sure that, they, I mean, honestly, I, what I like about it is because you're eliminating a lot of the games <laughs> that, that I've personally experienced or seen, and you're making it true about making sure it actually is a healthy business that can be transferred, to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, the, one of the challenges in the market is that a lot of folks that do financing, um, they just don't do a lot of acquisitions. Um, so they're not familiar with kind of the fundamentals of how do you look at an acquisition? How do you look at EBITDA or seller's discretionary earnings? What kind of multiples might be in a normal funding range? Um, and uh, how do you put the deal together? And then also walk somebody through what might be the various forms of capital that'll work. And um, the key there is finding that common ground between the buyer, the seller, and the lender. Because if just the buyer and the seller agree, but the lender can't get there, it's not going to be a deal. Well, um, which so, is, which is I sorry to interrupt because I think that's yeah. so cool because or interesting and different than a lot of the world that I've come from. Because when you have a lender like yourself involved, you're like the referee, and don't I don't know. Hopefully, that's not a bad connotation because i think it's it's interesting because the bank has the lender has to approve the valuation and and, and you're driving the bus a lot or making the everybody dance together because in the in the in the open world the the i mean the, the buyer can drive so much of the process and drive down the price i mean so the valuation that and the multiple and all that stuff is driven by two parties instead of having someone that's in the middle of that so can you kind of walk through how you navigate those waters with the two two parties and so how do you and the lender actually come up with that valuation you bet so kind of my approach is always um you know cash flow is the driver of value so we're, we're going to look at cash flow the the bank tends to be the most neutral position the bank has a profit incentive in terms of making the loan and making as big a loan as is reasonably possible because we're getting paid interest on the balance of the loan mm -hmm. But the bank also, of course, wants to make a loan that gets repaid. So it doesn't want terms that aren't um, advantageous and, and um, tee up a buyer for success. So I would say most parties do look at the bank as kind of in the middle. Mm -hmm. And we tend to pull people toward us a little bit. Oftentimes, folks in the marketplace might use me to help set expectations with a seller. And I'm also helping a buyer understand that it is a health, healthy market. And attractive companies are going to trade for pretty decent multiples. Um, so we tend to kind of pull, we're the, we're the magnet that pulls people together. And oftentimes people will want things that we're probably not going to give them. So I'm, I can also kind of be bad cop. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, for instance, seller carried financing. In most of my transactions, we are going to expect the seller to carry a portion of the transaction, typically somewhere between 10 to 15% of the purchase price. And that helps the bank mitigate some risk. Um, also incense a proper transition over time from the seller. That's, uh, I mean, 
It is really cool because again, you got everybody working on the same playbook. You know, you've got because, like you said, if the if the SBA's whole goal is to make sure that there's a healthy business that transfers, so everybody collects their tax revenue, the bank collects their revenue, and the seller and the buyer both win. I mean, you're actually putting all the puzzles together instead of generally. There's you hear some of the horror stories of the the buyer that has intent of driving down value or not paying some of the the long drawn out um, caveats that are thrown into a deal. And the, one of the things I like that I like to remind the parties. Um, so I don't I don't represent either party. The buyer is my client, but I represent the bank. So as opposed to an attorney or an agent who typically have a fiduciary accountability to one party or the other, my role and my accountability is actually to the bank. So I always remind my customer that while they're my customer and I want them to be happy and I want to give them good service, I have a duty to represent the bank and its and its depositors and owners. Um, so that's the other key issue is, our, uh, you know, I represent a third party. And as a third party, our process is really focused on due diligence and analysis and taking what we think we know and then validating it with third party due diligence. So it's it's a market based approach that as much as possible is not based on how people feel, but based on what the data says. So let's dive into what what does your due diligence process look like and how do you determine value on a specific company? Sure. So for me, uh, due diligence is is really two parts. In the market, you'll tend to hear folks uh, talk about SBA approved or pre-approved. I say there's really no such thing as pre-approved. Either you're approved or you're not. Um, and, And unless you've got a buyer, a seller and a purchase agreement and a financial package, you're not approved. Um, But people are often do get what I call pre-qualified. So whether you're a buyer or a seller, I will work with folks to kind of pre-qualify them for financing. And and part of that process is making sure, you know, that buyers have some liquidity. They've got some cash to bring to the table and some dry powder. They've got good, um, a good fit from a management and ownership um, and history point of view. So their experience fits and they've got good personal credit and they don't have any baggage. Um, on the sell side, I'm typically looking for, you know, good trends, um, hopefully good or, or, or neutral trends. I'm looking, for, of course, for cash flow and typically for valuation where a broker or agent might look at seller's discretionary earnings. I'm going to look at discretionary earnings as well, but on a tax basis, then I'm going to take off a reasonable owner pay and then I'm going to take remaining cash flow. And generally speaking, as a rough rule of thumb, I would use a five time multiple of cash flow after new owner pay, which will give me kind of a ceiling for what a valuation scenario might look like. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, so there's a couple different pieces of the, of the process that I like. And before we even dive into a little bit more detail, what are the size deals? Uh, are there deal limit sizes uh, from a lender and or the SBA or what, where does the usual transaction size fit? Yeah, perfect question. And and my rough rule of thumb that five times cash flow after new owner pay, that rule of thumb really only works when you're in the sweet spot of the SBA market. And so there really isn't a lower end, but the lower you go, the more the more that owner pay is as a percentage of the deal. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if a deal has a hundred thousand of SDE sellers discretionary earnings and a buyer is going to pay themselves seventy-five thousand dollars salary three quarters of the company's cash flows go straight to the owner. Mm-hmm. Well, if a company's got a million dollars of SDE and the owner's going to pay, pay themselves a hundred thousand, 90% of the cash flow is still available. So to some degree, I would say in general, there's no lower end of the market in the SBA world, 
but deals do get harder because that pay for the new owner takes up most of the cash flow. And then on the upper end, um, SBA policy limits uh, eligibility to $5 million. So an SBA 7A loan of $5 million would be the policy maximum that it would generally be above the, app- the credit appetite of a lot of banks. Now, I recently closed a transaction that was close to $4 million. Uh, there was about 800000 of real estate in that. Um, the bank funded over $3 million of, of um, acquired business assets. Um, so between two and $5 million is where there's going to be a lot of variation between lenders and what their willingness is. And I will say the stronger the deal, of course, the more lenders are willing to go bigger. And what's interesting in, of a conversation that you and I had about the types of deals, so like you were just uh, alluding to, that your ability based on where, what lender you're working with, um, you do a lot in the digital online space, which I find very interesting because I've interviewed some uh, gentlemen on our podcast that you know it's a lot of e-commerce or they've got digital assets. And you have the ability to actually do deals in that space because of how you go about this process. I don't know if you can, because I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but you explained what a closing is like at some of these, which is way different when there's a lot of machinery. So I don't know if you can kind of shed some light because I think there's a lot of people that would be very interested to hear about how you guys approach that. You bet. And the, um, I, I would say that in general, SBA lenders probably don't do a lot of e-commerce, but they certainly do e-commerce. And the key really is the, um, if, uh, if a deal can be validated and verified with tax basis cash flow. So SBA lenders are required to validate three years of tax returns through the IRS. So we get the, we get the, the uh, three years of tax returns from the seller. We go to the IRS. We get a ta- tax transcript. We compare the two, make sure they match. Um, so SBA lenders are not afraid of e-commerce in general because they're like most other types of service companies where there's not a lot of tangible assets. Mm-hmm. So a conventional bank lender, it, collateral is very important to a bank lender. Um, but in these acquisitions, there typically is not a lot of collateral. Even in a manufacturing company, when there are tangible assets, if it's a nice company and performing well, typically the single biggest asset is goodwill, which of course is still intangible. Mm-hmm. Um, a service company, for instance, let's say it's a, um, um, a you know, accounting firm, you know, or a law firm. Again, not a lot of tangible assets. Well, e-commerce is very similar. So as long as it's an e-commerce company that's got tax basis revenue, tax basis cash flow, and we can validate that through the IRS, that in and of itself is not a negative. Um, as a transaction gets bigger and bigger, and the amount of unsecured lending that the SBA lender is doing that's where the concern comes in. And pretty much every lender is going to have that concern. Again, whether it's e-commerce or some other kind of service business, that that part doesn't typically matter. It's just that collateral shortfall. And at some point, most banks will say, hey, that's enough. We don't want to fund anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Those transactions are still viable because oftentimes in those transactions, sellers realize, hey, I really don't have any tangible assets. I might need to carry a little more. So that typical structure of, say, 15% buyer cash, 10% seller carry, and 75% financing, well, as the deal gets bigger and as the amount of goodwill gets bigger, that those proportions can change. Hey, we can still fund the deal. We can still get the seller a nice chunk of cash at close. But sellers of bigger deals with more goodwill, they may need to carry a larger percentage. Yeah, which I think is so cool because, it, I mean, it, it 
everything you said makes so much sense, but I think I've, from the conversations that I have in the marketplace or people that have been on the show, there's just been frustrations because they've got a very viable business that does have those things. And they tend to see a lot of banks that are scared of that stuff because there's not quote unquote stuff. I literally had a guy that said there wasn't, I didn't have any sewing machines or stamping machines, so they didn't want to fund my deal. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I will say the, um, so uh, one of the things to touch on is just uh, the a lot of the issues with SBA in the market is due to the practitioners in the market. So SBA tends to get a bit of a bum rap, and and sometimes banks and or bankers that don't use SBA often they will the SBA makes for a good boogeyman, and so they can kind of blame the stuff either that they don't get or don't execute properly on. They can kind of blame it on SBA. Um, what I would tell you is a good SBA lender that's experienced and understands the programs and how to apply them to their client's circumstance um, should be able to get out ahead of these issues. And they shouldn't ever say, hey, I can't do the deal because there's no collateral. Now, they might say, hey, I can't do any more than X because we won't do more than X unsecured. In other words, at some point, the bank's going to go, hey, no more. And between buyer cash and seller carry, you guys got to carry the rest of the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't really get into the SBA business without having an appetite for unsecured financing. And that's the whole purpose of the SBA guarantee, so that the lender has another safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than liquidating collateral, we go back and we invo- enforce our SBA guarantee. Well, and I think it's, you hit on a, a key point, um, based on the practitioners and all, everything that just kind of wrapped up. I mean, when we were out at Imaging Path before we, uh, before we switched, we were actually, I interviewed like 14 different bankers and everybody's got their different kind of pitch. They either are totally sales, total underwriter combination of, of, uh, everybody in between, but knowing how that lender, how much exposure and experience they have with SBAs is huge because we were going down a road where, you know, it, it seemed like a really good fit, but then you realize that they've only done like five SBA loans. <laughs> it's like maybe, I mean, because like you said, it's such an, it's such an, you know, a detailed process that you want to make sure that someone actually understands how to do this and do this well. It is from my point of view, it's key to have a credible SBA um, specialist and, and most, most good commercial bankers are willing to say, Hey, SBA is not really necessarily my thing. And, and a good SBA lender if you have other funding mechanisms that work, I also work with some very, very strong borrowers, very strong buyers, where SBA is not their only, their only option. Um, in those scenarios, SBA may be a choice. Conventional commercial bank financing might be a choice. Um, and what I would call personal funding might be a choice. In other words, they can write a check. They can leverage um, personal assets like either liquid securities or personal real estate. I work with a, probably a third of my clients fall into that category where really my role is to help them differentiate and choose from different funding options. The typical commercial banker might not have that same skill set to be able to differentiate conventional SBA and personal funding choices for, uh, for, for buyers. Because it's about the deal structure and getting it done and done the right way. And let's take it a, a not, notch deeper in some of the weeds because you have some very good, from you and I talking, you did some very good thoughts and advice on how buyers, what, what kind of buyers are out there? What kind of sellers are out there and how you match? Because, you know, can you give us a little bit of a, um, an overview of the types of deals? Is it mid-market mainstream family transitions? And then, you know, where are these buyers that are looking for SBA loans and where are the sellers and how do you, you know, what is the landscape, I guess, of the market and how do you, sure. how do you actually match it all together? 
You bet. Well, a, a couple of things. There, there are a couple of different marketplaces. Um, there's the change of ownership marketplace, which is generally business acquisitions. The 7A program is the primary tool there. And business advisors, business brokers, attorneys, accountants, those are all kind of the market makers, so to speak. And the market makers will vary depending on is the business listed and publicly marketed, i.e. with a broker, or is it more of an inside deal where either we've got current insiders buying or we've got some uh, some known person buying and there's no agent or intermediary. Um, SBA is a good tool for both of those situations. Um, oddly enough for me, um, the deals that are marketed and that are bought by an outside third party through an agent tend to be the easiest because they've been on the market and they've um, the seller has experienced the marketplace. For me, one of my toughest transactions tends to be family transactions. Because it's family. <laughs> well, because it's inside and because there's been no exposure to the marketplace or marketplace norms around both value and structure. So oftentimes when we get an inside buyer, you know, I, I, I show up at the first meeting and I go, so what are you thinking? And they look at me like, oh, I don't know. I thought you were here to tell us. <laughs> And, and I say, hey, for this. <laughs> well, I say, hey, guys, I'm not an agent. I don't represent you or your interests. I am never going to be the first one to say a number. Once you tell me a number that you're thinking, I'm, I'm happy to give you my feedback about that number. But I don't want somebody at some future date saying, hey, that SBA guy told me my business was worth this. I just go, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert on business valuations. I am an expert on funding businesses in price ranges that make sense to lenders. Two different perspectives of the same question. Right. Um, so inside transactions tend to be hard. Um, and again, whether it's an acquisition of a going concern or even commercial real estate, because there hasn't been exposure to marketplace norms or pressures. So that's when I usually steer people back to their, for instance, their CPA or their attorney. The, the other dynamic that you often see is people say, well, let's hire an appraiser as a first step. And from my point of view, that's, that's not always the greatest idea. In general, appraisers do better work when they know what two parties in an open market think. In other words, the first comp in an appraisal is the purchase agreement or the, the terms of the sale of that particular um, business or, or building you're trying to value. If you just say to an appraiser, hey, what's it worth? And they don't have the context of well, what do the buyer and the seller think? Um, it's a little, I always say it's kind of like sending them into the woods without a map or compass. Mm -hmm. They're kind of feeling their way around without that first data point, which is, well, what do people think now? What I typically advise folks is they should start to look at things like cash flow, start to do some research about um, what, what a normal multiple in their industry might be, and then start to think about and, and what can the company afford going forward and have some idea of what do we think might be a fair price to both the buyer and the seller before they um, go to an appraiser or even a lender, or at least have a, a starting point. Well, yeah, I, I, I can just visualizing those scenarios where you're just walking into just a bunch of loose stuff. And like you said, you nailed it when you said there needs to be at least one data point for you or something. I mean, everybody's got to have some sort of benchmark and a foundation to work off of. But let's for a second assume that they've got some sort of, you know, exposure and they've worked with someone to actually build, you know, quote unquote, an exit plan, selfless plug is like to literally have, okay, let's, cause I think the family always thinks that the kids or the inside management has to have money. And I think this is where your expertise can become very crucial because you can make things happen that most people I don't think actually are, know are possible because 
most of the, like, I, most of the comments I hear, oh, you know, my kid doesn't have any money or then, you know, my manager, I don't pay him enough to buy out or I don't want to give up my cash flow in order to let him buy me. So let's say they had some sort of rough idea on the time frame and or the cash flow that's available and some sort of agreement on the multiple. How do you how do you actually help them structure that in the inside? Sure. So one of the things to know is, for, for instance, in third party transactions, we typically always want to see buyer cash coming into the deal. But for instance, on inside transactions, whether it's a current minority shareholder or a family member or just current management, um, because those people already take their living out of the business, they already know the customer base, they already kind of have a built-in vested interest in the deal. Um, in those transactions, certainly we are willing to think of or, or require less cash from the buyer. So lower levels of cash is pretty common for inside, inside management or family buyers. And, and for a good SBA lender, that won't surprise them. It could create a challenge or, or it might not. The other thing is I always focus on what I call a range of outcomes. So um, what I like to help people do is understand, hey, what number one, what is a valuation scenario that makes sense? And to me, that same scenario makes sense for an outside buyer or an inside buyer. And then based on any particular buyer, outside or inside, how might a deal come together? And one thing that people always say to me is they go, I don't want to waste your time because their information might be incomplete or they don't feel like it's strong enough or they don't have all their data available. And I always remind them, hey, I I would never close a deal if I wasn't willing to invest time on the front end to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I go, believe me, no matter what deal I see, I've seen worse deals. So sometimes <laughs> people are kind of kind of shy. I'm like, believe me, I've seen something worse. Don't be shy. So I always think the ability and willingness to engage in the process and to produce some, some decent financial information, both on the buy side and on, on the sell side. And then somebody like me can come in and say, hey, SBA might be an option or conventional financing might be an option or, hey, you might not be viable for financing at all. But there may be a way to structure this internally to get it funded uh, without a lender. So what happens um, What happens when you're doing an internal transfer like that and you actually want the seller to stick around? Because, I mean, if you have to have a cut of ownership like that or a cut of, you know, the, the actual involvement, is there like is there major stipulations that you have in a transfer like that? Yes. Um, so important to note. So on any kind of inside transaction, let's say you got a, a number of current shareholders. And they're going to buy out either senior, senior, a senior manager or they're going to buy out all the current owners except one or two. So any exiting owner has to sell 100% of their interest. In other words, they can't get money and still be an owner. So as of day of closing, they can't be an owner. They can't be an officer. They can't be a key employee. They, can, they are eligible for up to a 12-month consulting agreement. And I typically recommend that those consulting agreements be unfunded. In other words, there not be a minimum contractual amount, typically set up on an hourly compensation rather than an annualized. So all owners have to exit. So if it's a third-party transaction and we've got an outside owner coming in, in that scenario, all current owners have to exit, regardless of their ownership percentage. Again, if it's current partners, any remaining partners have to remain proportional to their pre-purchase level. So if you got four partners and you got two that are exiting, uh, and, but the two that are staying, one wants to be majority and one wants to be minority, but they were equal before, I can't fund that deal. They got to be equal. If they were equal before, they got to be equal after as well. SBA won't fund what they refer to as creeping control. So 
So transactions that change the power dynamic and ownership dynamic, um, SBA says, nope, we don't want any part of those because we don't want to be involved in deals that Sorry, you want to make sure that that it's constant, it's constant, and you can project the future, right? Because if you were to change the power dynamic like that, it puts more risk on whether or not you're going to get paid back. More risk, and and also, um, it's not that it's not that changes of ownership proportion are wrong or unhealthy. It's just that that's not a part of what SBA wants to be involved with. In other words, we don't want to create a, a uh, we don't want to unknowingly be a party to a conflict or kind of a takeover. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, hey, whatever the ownership percentage was before, it's got to be the same after. Now, I will say sometimes the end result someone wants isn't supported by the current structure. So when when these things are a dialogue over time, someone like me can say, hey, guess what? You Here at the end of this year, you should make a change to your ownership structure, which tees you up for an SBA buyout six months or a year from now, because then your own, your end result will be what you want. So that's one of the, the other things people don't always recognize. Sometimes it's going to take two steps to get to your end result rather than just one fell swoop. Well, and actually, um, let's expand on that because I think, th- so there's some cool things that I'm working on with internal transfers where you get, because, and you answered my question when you said you have, because you have to have that, like that immediate cut with the SBA when it's finally financed. But there's a couple internal transfer compensation structures that I'm putting in place because it all matters about how much that seller wants to net at the end of the day. So let's say, yep. let's say that a half million dollar EBITDA and that internal key man wanted to, or, you know, or family member wanted to buy it, you put like a compensation plan in place. If you go from 500 to then 600 to then 700, that growth goes into buying non-voting shares of the business so they can contribute in, you know, ownership over those, you know, future few years. And when it hits a certain, you know, whether it's a certain EBITDA or a certain uh, controlling share or the seller collects enough distributions, then you essentially you just quote unquote refinance with an SBA and then then the final sever happens. So like you said, it's kind of that's the first foundation, but then you can at least work on that structure before you actually get the rest of the financing done. Exactly. And and I would say one of the ways when when internal transactions are the preferred outcome, people should, in in my opinion and probably yours, people should start earlier. They should start to have the discussions earlier. They should start to be able to kind of paint the picture of what does the end result look like and know that it's kind of like playing a game of chess. You've got to make a few moves to get to your end result. And that 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 early that younger generation, whether they're family or non-family, um, part of their compensation rather than being dollars might be shares or quasi shares or some other form of ownership in the company or or capital to make an equity contribution when the actual transaction happens. So some kind of deferred compensation structure that puts either shares or dollars aside for the buyer downstream is oftentimes a good way to go when you've got an inside buyer. Well, and then to tie it to growth so that way you don't have to fund it out of your own cash flow. Because I remember the conversation that was always with my dad is, why should I give you part of my cash flow that I already have? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so if you can tie that you know, additional stock or cash bonus as a deferred comp to growth, for future funding, then everybody's, everybody wins. Like no no one loses in the situation. Perfect. So I want to go and and flip the switch for a second and talk about the, the buyers that are out there. Cause I think, you know, in the the range that you plan, there's a lot of, 
uh, like because it's all associated with the seller's discretionary earnings. It's a lot of lifestyle buyers. And correct me if I'm wrong at any point, but um, how do you find those buyers? Where do they come from? Because if I'm selling, you know, it, it, there's a lot of it has to be the right fit. And you yep. do you do a lot of you know, from the conversation you and I had. You do a lot of due diligence on the resume because when you and I were having the conversation about my, my particular situation is, you know, if you've got a guy that's making a half million dollars at Honeywell and he quits and goes and buys a company, he's no longer making a half million bucks or anything like that. So how do you structure that? What are their qualifications and how do you, how do you make sure that it's the right fit? Yeah. A, a couple things. Um, uh, so I've been doing this a long time. I've been an SBA lender for 15 years. Um, the quality of buyers has continued to increase over time. Um, so I would say we're, we're in as good of a market in terms of buyer quality as I've seen. For me, a good buyer is someone who has liquidity and, and commensurate to the kind of transaction they're trying to pull off. So depending on how big a deal you're going for, um, you should have dough to put into the deal. You should also have dry powder on the sideline. In other words, we don't want you putting your last dollar in. Good buyers also have transferable skills. In other words, they've got good business skills and they can demonstrate those. They've managed people, they've managed processes, and they've managed money. Uh, good buyers also have, um, you know, they have good personal credit and hopefully no baggage, no, no legal, no significant legal or financial issues. The, um, you know, key issues on the buy side is also just cost of cost of living. So total household expense becomes very important. Um, so folks who have very high income, but also have a high expense level, and that expense level will be continuing when they want to buy a company, that's a hard starting point. That guy so, for Honeywell that needs a 500 grand and wants to go buy a small print shop that <laughs> that's only netting yeah. 500 grand. Well, well I go, work. I go, if, if a guy's making really good, if a man or woman is making really good money, um, and, but doesn't have to spend a lot to live. In other words, they got fairly small mortgage, their, their cars are paid off, their toys are paid off all those kind of things, um, then that's somebody that's, that to me is well positioned for an acquisition. Um, if I have someone who's both high income and high household expense, that person is actually fairly poorly positioned because we have to look at the, you know, again, the business has to do three things, has to pay the owner, has to pay the lenders, has to have wiggle room. Well, the more the owner takes out as a percentage of that total dis, uh, uh, seller's discretionary earnings or EBITDA or cash flow, the less there is to support debt. Um, so for me, my best buyer is someone with a conservative lifestyle, whereas they've, they've stashed money away, they've paid down debt, and they can, um, they can reduce their total household income when they make this acquisition. They can live on a fairly modest salary until the business is performing well, and they can, and they can either bonus or distribute more cash to themselves. So how do you go about, do you, do you actually interview the buyers in like a professional interview of like they're trying to get a job style or how do you guys go about no, doing that? No, not at all. Um, what, I, what I would say is in, in general, so um, I typically, you know, my typical process is I get introduced to buyers from advisors in the marketplace that send folks to me. We usually start with a brief conversation, 15 minutes to an hour, depending on the level of questions and, and curiosity of the, of the person. Then I'm collecting a fairly basic financial package of their personal financial statement, their personal tax returns and their resume. Then we're just kind of having a general conversation. And what tends to happen is I get to know them as we look at deals. So in other words, I'm not usually moving forward with somebody on the very first deal we talk about. It might be the fifth deal or the 50th deal. Um, so as we talk about deals, I get to know them and their background and their experience and their story, and then I can help. 
Now, right now I have a, uh, a client I'm working with. It's the first deal we've worked on. He happens to have 20 years experience in the industry of that, that he's buying in. Um, now, financially, he's not quite as strong a buyer, um, but from an experience point of view, he's super strong. So the other thing in my role is that mix of what is the mix and is it the right mix? So any particular buyer might be stronger in experience. They might be stronger in the personal liquidity. They may be stronger in a low household expense. Part of my, um, my job is to help position them as a well-qualified buyer to the bank so that when an underwriter looks at them, they go, yep, that's somebody we would like to place a bet on and, and make a loan. And all that makes so much sense too, because when I was talking to another individual who was kind of in the market for that situation, you know, everybody is always so concerned about their income. And I'm like, well, actually you're using the cash flow of the business to buy it. And you need, yeah. to, you need to have everybody have skin in the game, which is probably very much associated with your different percentages, but like you're not going to be making any money because that's going to be your new job. So you have to be, have everything fall in line with what is going to be, not what is. Yeah, I did a transaction recently, kind of an interesting story, where I had two buyers, a married couple, both with good incomes, um, already owned investment real estate. They were getting into the group home business, um, and that, that's an industry that we're active in. Um, when they first came to me, one of the two of them in, in group homes and, and, and similar healthcare businesses tend to be pretty well staffed. There's some regulatory and licensure related roles, and the staffing tends to be pretty good. They actually came to me originally, and their business plan was one of the two of them were going to quit their job and run the business full time. Well, I looked at the staffing in the business that they were buying. I looked at them and their experience, and they're, they're both in good, well-paying jobs where they also have flexibility. And I said, hey, guys, why would, you, why would one of you quit your jobs? This deal is actually stronger if you two both maintain your outside income and, and you just act as support to the existing staff that's already there and staying. That's what they actually had wanted to do, but they thought that they would have one of them would have to quit. So I, I would say we are typically an owner operator kind of model in the SBA world, but the the scenario varies based on the transaction and the buyer um, and what the company needs. So part of my role is to help say, hey, what's the right solution, and to ask questions. Um, the the other thing that it tends to take buyers a little bit of time to figure out as they get to know the business is what is the go forward staffing model. Hey, can I just buy it myself and just replace the owner? Or do I also need to hire somebody? Are there, are there other FTE that'll be leaving? Or is the owner you know, working more hours than I really want to? Or can I really replace two people? If the owner's absentee, maybe I can replace both the owner and, and a manager, for instance. So understanding that, that go forward business and, or ownership and management model is really key to understanding cash flow. Totally, totally. And if we were to switch it, do you, you know, with the deals that you're involved in, is it mainly from the buyer side that you're getting involved in? Or, you know, when someone's going to exit their business, I mean, usually they're either hiring a broker, an investment banker, and then they go to you once they find that buyer. Like how, how do you usually find the deals? Is it mainly the buy side or is it mainly, is it mainly the sales side? Um, yes, <laughs> I would, <laughs> I, it's funny. I would say most of, most of my quote unquote leads come from folks that represent the sell side, but interact with the buy side. And that would typically be intermediaries of various types. So actual agents, advisors, um, accountants, attorneys, any, any kind of advisory role, but typically it's someone who's acting as an advisor to the seller, an advisor or agent to the seller, but they're the first point of contact for a potential buyer. And then that buyer gets sent to me. Um, I also certainly have just 
unaffiliated buyers that reach out to me directly, kind of get pre-qualified on the buy side. And then they're out in the market, kind of just shopping in general and looking at any number of different sources for a potential transaction. So from my point of view, the the key really is that fit and marriage. I see I see good buyers and good sellers where I'm not interested in the, them together though. I like the buyer, I like the seller, but they don't go together. All right, tell me a story. I, you've got you're thinking of one in particular while you said that. I yeah, I gotta imagine. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, mostly it's experience, and in most of my transactions, transferable skills are the are the 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 primary. Um, kind of explanation or background on the buy side. In other words, most of my buyers do not have direct industry experience in the exact business that they're buying. Um, but as businesses get more specialized, for instance, if you've got a high tech or highly specialized manufacturing company or a highly specialized uh, commercial subcontracting company, we're not likely to fund a general buyer with good general business skills into a highly specialized business. So the more specialized the business becomes, the more it's important that there be a really good fit between the, the, the skill set required and the buyer. Businesses that, you know, uh, for instance, a an industrial distribution company. Well, I got a whole bunch of potential buyers that could fit into a company like that and maybe not have any specific industry skills. Um, the other big underlying question is, what is the continuity that's remaining? So a key question I'm always going to ask mm -hmm. is, you know, if, if, the, if it's a consulting business with one, one owner and one guy, even if it makes great money, you better be kind of a copycat of that guy or it's going to be hard to buy. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's harder to transfer that business. The more a business has people in various roles with, that have continuity with customers, with vendors, with employees, et cetera, the, the more transferable that business. So that's the other issue is what's the continuity within the business that's staying uh, and how much is it going to hang on the buyer and their experience to carry the deal forward? Well, you touched on a couple of really cool points because I don't know if you're familiar with the John Warlow built to sell or value builder system. Um, we kind of adhere to some of that stuff at, uh, at our firm. And one of the things is the whole hub and spoke, and you, you were talking about the specialization of maybe that engineering manufacturing firm. But in that, let, let's say in that situation, I was the owner and I actually had a president because I'd worked myself out of that hub and spoke, but I became more of the investor and you no longer needed that because you might have had, you might now have a general manager that's doing all of the work. Does that open the marketplace a little bit more for the buyers? It does. Um, the, and, and I would say as a general rule, uh, oddly enough, the bigger the company gets, and the more continuity there is in the employee base, um, the less of an issue it becomes. So I recently closed a relatively large transaction, well, not a super specialized business, but where my buyer had really great business skills, but none related to this particular industry. I, he was a great buyer. So as a business gets bigger and as the infrastructure and the hierarchy of people gets bigger and the continuity, you know, what's the tenure of different people? Um, then that, that, that issue tends to go away. So again, if uh, a lot of the businesses I fund, the seller started as, a, as a, some kind of technician. In other words, they, the seller did the work. Over time, they turned in, into a business owner. Some business owners remain at heart technicians, 
And those are the ones that are, those are the businesses that are harder to sell and transition. Some business, some business owners over time go from being technicians to being professional business owners. Those are the businesses that are easier to sell and easier to transition to, to a wider variety of buyers because the, the, the owner has morphed into a professional business manager rather than a technician. You just like quoted the e-myth right there. I love it. Yeah. Um, so if there was a couple things, John, that you'd leave our, our listeners with that you've either touched on, you want to reiterate, or you want to bring and leave them with, what would it be? Yeah, I think really key is looking at, um, you know, always working with experienced advisors. And again, whether that's me, whether that's your banker, uh, whether that's your accountant, your attorney, um, working with folks that are experienced and proven and that have some skill sets around the transition of a business or the acquisition of commercial real estate, or for instance, construction financing, whatever it may be. Um, so, so to me, kind of that credibility of your team, I always say these transactions tend to be the financial Super Bowl of both the buyer and the seller. <laughs> and when you're, out re- when you're recruiting a quarterback for your financial Super Bowl, rate and term shouldn't be your number one driver. So. <laughs> To me, that's just a really key issue. Um, the other thing is fundamentals. So I always think the ability to have a, que- a discussion about financial fundamentals always leads to good outcomes. Again, whether it's regarding a going concern, whether it's regarding a potential real estate purchase. Um, so the ability to, to talk financial fundamentals, do we have cash flow? Do we have value? Do we have liquidity? basic building blocks. And then the, and then I'd say the last thing is just the um, ability to listen to the market and, and hear what your advisors say, regardless of what you feel. Advisors are going to have some marketplace norms and marketplace norms are just that. They're a way to look at the transaction. Doesn't mean you have to do it, but those advisors have that experience to give you some context. And whether you're a buyer or a seller, relying on the advice of those, those pros, I think really, um, helps deals come together. Well, listen to the norms prior to actually having to do the deal, because then you can change stuff if you need to. <laughs> and, and, you know, you kind of know where you're going. Um, it's, I would say it, it's good. It's, it's kind of like a sea voyage. It, it helps if you know where you're going. It helps if you have provisions. It's, it helps if you have a map and compass, you leave port and then you got to adjust as you go due to weather conditions. Um, but the key is we want to get you to that destination, but the destination's kind of got to make sense. I love it. John, what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is uh, sbaguy at anchorlink.com or 612-505-9751 on myself. Thanks for coming on the show, John. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the interview with John. So here are some of my takeaways and some of my thoughts on John's ideas and thoughts in the interview. You know, one of the main things that really hit home and ha- I think should be highlighted is the transferability of the business has to be there because when you have a bank involved that is financing a deal like this for 10 years, their main goal is to get paid back and get their interest. So, They want to make sure that this is the healthiest possible transfer that they possibly can. So the only two ways to make that transfer possible is to make sure that the buyer is extremely qualified to continue that cash flow over the next 10 years to pay back and service that loan. So to make sure that the the resume, the skill sets, and the quality of that buyer is extremely important and actually can be 
even more important than the actual funds that are available for the purchase. And then the other way to make that transfer even more applicable is to make sure that you build yourself out of that company, to make sure that you become an investor and not just a worker. So as John and I were talking about in the in the interviews, go from technician in the e-myth world to entrepreneur, which is you running a business, but then become an investor. Work yourself out of that business because it's not only going to make you more money in the end, but then it's also going to open up the range of buyers that are available to you. Because if you've got a specialized business where they need to know your stuff, the only way to actually open up that market is to replace yourself. And then it allows the buyer to come in and then become an investor, not just a a worker. So I think it's extremely important to apply that because the bank is the one that has to make sure that those funds continue to flow. And, you know, one of the other things that I thought was really important that I want to highlight that what John was saying was fit versus fundamentals and the fundamentals have to be there and making sure that because this is so, like his, he said, vanilla, chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, whatever it was, is we need to make sure that there's cash flow, pure and simple, because the cash flow funds the deal, services the debt, and provides a lifestyle for that uh, for that potential buyer. So that has to be there, and making sure that the SBA is a tool is extremely important. And you know, having uh, you know, I guess maybe this is the, one of the third takeaway is making sure that your lender understands this. I cannot. I cannot stress it enough. I worked with way too many lenders and interviewed 14 plus banks and everybody's different that's sitting across the table from you. But then also every one of those lenders, even if they are a good fit, might not do this and might not see the SBA as a tool and might only see it as a potential commission. So making sure that your lender has the ability to do it, but then also can say no, because they know when a commercial loan versus uh, a no deal is actually applicable. So the quality of the lender and the, the skill set, but then also making sure that the cash flow and everything is there is super important. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with John. I think, you know, demystifying this SBA and, you know, getting rid of the boogeyman feel because it is just a tool and it is the right tool for a lot of different situations and doing the prep work ahead of time. You know, I guess if there's one last takeaway, it's that it is a total possibility for internal transfers. If you get this stuff set up correctly and you have, you know, a, a compensation structure or a growth strategy that allows for that insider to buy in prior to then financing it, it uh, that will that structure will then allow more sellers uh, distributions and more net proceeds and teeing it all up to make that SBA financed loan that much easier when the time comes. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. All the resources and links are in the show notes. So feel free to check those out. Please review me on iTunes. If you got the time or the patience, I would be much appreciated. Follow us on all of the social media platforms. And until next time, we'll see you later.